Marco on the normal radio. Free weed. Free weed. Oh, yo. Danny Danko come to show you how it grows. You're now tuned in to Free Weed from Danny Danko on normal radio. Presented by High Times Magazine. See me, I say, boom, bang. Big respect. See me, I say, Danny Danko. All right, welcome to episode number 80. Wow, 80 episodes of High Times Presents Free Weed from Danny Danko and Mike Hughes, my co-host here in the building. What's up, Mike? Hello, everybody. All right, as always, thank you, Jacques and Winstrong, for the wonderful song. Thank you to Mike Hughes for pressing all the the fancy buttons, uh, levels, and hitting all the switches and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, so we just came back from our cup, uh, 420 epic epic cup in denver colorado um it's kind of hard to sum up everything that went down uh, if you were there you you know and if you weren't uh, hopefully you saw some social media stuff out there on instagrams and twitters and facebooks and whatnot uh fifty thousand people would you say oh yeah, yeah? fifty thousand plus people if you're going to count vendors and vips a lot of great people uh met a lot of uh fans of the show which was cool. People coming up and saying uh, free weed, singing the song, um, wanting stickers, although I didn't have any, but I will at NorCal and Future Cups. And uh, yeah, I mean, what a, what an incredible time. Incredible shows. Nas, uh, Snoop, Cypress Hill, uh, Redman. Really an incredible, incredible weekend. And the Super Trooper guys came yeah. to our award show. Yeah. That was that pretty was cool. Yeah, yeah. They did a seminar. They showed uh, – they. they Basically talked about Super Troopers 2 coming out. They did a big Kickstarter for that, which they got the money for. So they're going to do that. And that was awesome to see them. And, you know, oh, just well, just an amazing cup and some incredible, uh, incredible spirit from uh, the attendees and the vendors. And it's epic. I don't know. It was the place to be on 420 uh, this year and hopefully every year. And it was just amazing i i can't say enough about uh just how how much fun we had and how great it was for cannabis in general and us in particular to get together celebrate uh and also you know we did this panel so um we had two different panels we'll play the other one in the future on a future episode uh this is the saturday panel uh from april 18th and uh yeah it's the cultivation grow panel uh i introduce uh we introduce the guests in the episode so i'm not going to name them off right now um but i guess without further ado uh here you have it here's the panel from april 18th in denver colorado and episode number 80 is in full effect hi everybody Hello. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for thank you so much for being here. No, we're good. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you guys are enjoying the uh, Denver Cannabis Cup. We're having a lot of fun. We really love we really love it here. We do. Yeah, this is our uh, fourth year here. Fifth year. Fifth year. Fourth year as a cup, uh, U.S. Cup, but no. fifth year we count medical cup. So, uh, and you know, obviously Denver is at the forefront right now of um, this whole situation, recreational marijuana growing uh, massive amounts and, and selling it recreationally and medicinally. So, yeah, 
Yes, so we're happy to bring live free weed to you right now. This mic's cutting out, so I'm just going to shout. Um, we have a great panel to talk about some cultivation, but before we get to them, I want to introduce you to the senior cultivation editor for High Times Magazine. Please give a warm welcome to Danny Danko. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, basically, uh, Mike is it. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to talk about cultivation. So I'm not going to uh, talk too much except just to say uh, right off to start, it looks like the genie's out of the bottle here uh, with cannabis. Hello? Check. It looks like the genie's out of the bottle right now, but the truth is we're one crack down away from a lot of setbacks to what we've got going on. We gotta keep this fight going. So we're here to celebrate, but we're also here to congregate and make sure that we don't uh, that we don't take any steps backwards. Alright? So keep that in mind. There's still a lot of people in jail, even here in the state of Colorado, for growing marijuana or for smoking it or for uh, possessing it. So the fight is not over by a long shot. We're winning, but it ain't over. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce my panelists here and have them just say a couple of words about um, growing and maybe just a couple of inspirational words about um, their perspective uh, in general on cannabis cultivation. Uh, to my left here is Mr. Philip Haig. He is the grower, the, ma the master grower for Mindful, uh, formerly known as Gaia Plant-Based Medicine, and he... he and he, he grows marijuana in very large quantities. <laughs> I did an article about him called the Indoor Acre, or a 44,000 square feet grow facility uh, indoors with hundreds and hundreds of grow lights and uh, a lot of people working, and he's in charge of all of that. So, Phil, welcome. Uh, thanks, Danny. Glad to be here. So, yeah, um, I'm third generation horticulturist. Um, the only thing I've ever done is grow plants in a on a really large scale, I grew up in a 20-acre greenhouse facility in Texas. Um, transferred a lot of that knowledge um, in commercial timing and scheduling um, to the cannabis plant. I've also um, been growing cannabis uh, since I was a child, more or less. So, um, you know, applying uh, the love for this particular plant um, and applying the uh, commercial growing um, skill set to it um, has been a real challenge and it's been real fun. Um, like he said, we have an acre facility here in Denver. I am currently um, building a much larger facility in Nevada and um, also in Illinois. So uh, there's a lot of stuff going on around the country, uh, lots of changes, and um, you know we definitely need the help of all you guys to keep uh, pushing the envelope and helping us uh, do what we do. So thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. To his left, we have uh, all the way from Oregon, <laughs> grower and grow book author. Drew West, he's the author of Grow Secrets of the West Coast Masters and uh, with the just released second edition of the book. Let's go. I'd like to set from Oregon, uh, basically just focus on innovative ways to increase yields and lower plant counts. Uh, we're governed by a lot of low plant count limits, so we just uh, Focus on scrub growing, different ways to you know maximize the efficiency, maximize the yield, and also the quality. And basically, uh, focus on that. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. It's like you get six plants limited, but you can grow. If you veg those plants out for a long time, you can grow massive plants. So it's interesting, and we'll get into that a little later on. Um, 
to to Drew's left, uh, someone who I've had on tons of my panels and has been on a bunch of stuff. Uh, long time contributor to High Times Magazine with all the greatest gardens, even going back into the 90s. And um, yeah, Kay from Track Home Technologies, one of the pioneers of Canada. My name is Kenneth Morrow. I run Tricom Technologies. We're a molecular genetic research company and pioneer a lot of the current hash-making technologies that are utilized today, um, as well as cannabis breeding, many genetics, over 200. First to get our stuff tested by the U.S. government in 1996 before there even was testing labs or anything else like that, uh, as well as you know moving into separated compounds, terpenes, terpenoids, and stuff like that. So there's a lot to look ahead of. So if you've done a bunch of dabs out there, you have this man to thank for that technology. Where we are right now as a cannabis scientists without his work uh, back when it was very underground, by the way, as well. So thank you, Kay. Uh, to his left, the founder of Steep Hill Labs uh, and also a grower of, of renown <laughs> in the past, uh, Mr. Addison DeMora. I'm Madison. Um, I was a grower for a long time and finally, uh, with my business partner David, found the Seed Hill in 2007. Uh, and essentially, just have been a grower and then got into uh, creating different standards for testing, from potency testing to mold, uh, pesticides, and then now into a lot of residual solvent stuff. I lost my voice last night, so. It's Aaron's fault. Shotgun wheelies. <laughs> Addison's <laughs> left, uh, the co-founder and creator of DNA Genetics uh, with his partner Don, who will be speaking with me Monday at 3.30. Um, winners of I don't even know how many Kansas Cups, pretty much everyone they entered uh, over in Holland and many over here as well. Aaron from DNA Genetics. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Um, Aaron from DNA Genetics. I come from California. Uh, cannabis has been a part of my life uh, since I've been about 11 years old. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, I, we just put our, Don and I just put our love into what we do. And thankfully it showed over the years. And thank you to High Times, you know, for having these events because without them, you guys would never know who we are. And without you guys, we wouldn't have grown into the company we are now. So, thank you guys. Yeah, DNA. These guys, what they did is, after a lot of guys in Holland started to sort of rest on their laurels and just sort of, you know, ride in neutral, they brought that Cali dang funk back to Amsterdam and, and reinfused the gene pool over there. Um, for a lot of other breeders as well, because they share their work. So, yeah. It's not so friendly there. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Um, and to Aaron's left, last but certainly not least, uh, a co-founder of TGA Genetics uh, with Subcool, is also a creator of amazing strains like Jilly Bean and uh, many others. Space Jill, right? Uh, Miss Jill from TGA Genetics. 
Hi, I'm Miss Jill from TGA Genetics. And as Danny said, creator of Jelly Bean, Brian Berry Pop. Um, currently, we're working on some ICD strains and um, really turning my focus to charity work and helping other people. And as Aaron said, good work to you guys. Yeah. Speaking of the charity work, they do a lot of really interesting stuff with uh, for children with autism and, and uh, fundraisers and you know they're they're a, the company that gives back. One of those seed companies that actually isn't just you know in just for the money, but also to educate and to help people learn more and help them get high CB strains and all kinds of stuff. So they've been great people for many years with the. Uh, High times and our strains and everything. So thank you, Ms. Jill. Um, and we can get right into it, I guess. Um, I think a lot of people aren't going to grow as big as Philip grows, but I think he's got a lot of good advice that you, he can, you can scale down from the type of situations that he's, he sees. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what are some of the pitfalls when you do go bigger, if someone's got a four or five light room and then they, they step up to you know twenty thousand watts or whatever it might be, what are uh, what are some of the issues that arise that you might not see in a smaller space? Um, the scaling of, of grow rooms is um, it's not ex exponential. It doesn't you know it's there's a, a big difference between growing um, one light to a hundred lights. Um, you know, the, the best advice I could give would be to, you know, keep it as simple as possible um, and implement as much standardization as possible so that if there are changes that you make, um, you're able to really tell what's making a difference. Um, it's, a, it's a lot harder when you're constantly changing up things and nothing is the same um, to see any results and to be able to tell what things are making a difference within your program. Um, so by implementing as much standardization, um, even on small-scale automation, um, as much of that stuff as possible, um, you're able to keep better control of what you're doing. Um, uh, keep as much data as you can. Um, you know, we're big data hogs. Um, you know, the more info I can keep on anything and everything, um, I can look deeper into that um, and you know, kind of pull results from that. And um, I've always done that, even on a small scale. And um, by being able to notice, like I said, what changes have been made and what effects are being made by, you know, by changing a nutrient or whatever. Um, if you're constantly changing things up within the system, um, you're never able to decide, you know, what, what's doing any good for you. Um, so, you know, really implementing as much standardization as possible and um, taking notes and being able to dig back into that stuff is, uh, it's huge, especially on a large scale. So. Thank you. Um, Drew, can you describe for us some of the techniques that you use to get the most out of uh, each plant, since you were talking about the plant limits and the scrog and that sort of thing. Can you elaborate a little bit about how you do that and what the benefits are, just besides just higher yields, but about airflow and things like that? Uh, yeah, sure. Basically, uh, it's all about the canopy structure. What I try to end up with is a bonsai style this kind of plant where trained all of the bottom branches to grow up on the same level as the ones that are at the top. So instead of ending up with the uh, typical Christmas tree formation of the plant, uh, we top it when it's very small, and then we work with four branches, kind of a north-south-east-west configuration, and we make sure that 
none of the branches gets any taller than the others, and then they grow uniformly. And as they get taller, we bend them down sideways, and then start to do the same manipulation with the secondary branches that grow off of them. Um, mathematically, we try to structure it so they're all the same. Uh, the scrawl plants, we'll try to do, you know, typically with the older school lights, they're better ones now, but you get about a four by four coverage with a light. And uh, you have plant limits, you know, like how you run six lights with a uh, medical card in Oregon. So we program with six lights, six plants. Uh, in a four foot by four foot area, I would uh, set up a little structure around the plant like that would hold the scrog net. Uh, the scrog net has, in a four by four scrog net, has 64 uh, six inch openings in it. So the idea behind that is if you can get the plant to throw 64 tops that are level, one goes in each one of those openings. If you achieve a quarter ounce with each of those colas, you've hit a pound. If you get two, you know, if you get a half ounce, then you got two pounds. And that's totally doable with the right straight. Um, when the plant doesn't sense a higher branch, it sends an equal amount of growth hormone to each of its branches. Uh, in nature, it usually focuses on the highest one because that's the one that has the best chance of getting pollinated, you know, when the wind blows. Um, so we manipulate the plant to where it doesn't have a favorite. Uh, then it sends all the same to all of them. You end up with uniform colas. So that's how you maximize your canopy space with one plant. Then you're watering one plant. You're trimming one plant. You know, and then you do a lot of pruning. You prune everything up below the net. So then you don't get you get a lot more airflow that way. You don't get bugs and mites and powdery. <coughs> uh, we tried the same thing with outdoor plants this year. They ended up being. 15 foot by 15 foot by about 15 foot high. Um, eight to 10 pounds on each one, just of nubs, you know. We ran a lot of that in the oil. But that was one medical card in Oregon. One guy, one card, like 50 pounds, you know. And that's watered six plants, you know what I'm saying? So that's, that's what we focus on. And I uh, got a new book coming out, Forest Money. Uh, I'm just gonna have a few with me, but uh, Secrets of the West Coast Masters. We have pictures of that grow. Uh, High Times has an article coming out with this soon. And uh, yeah, there's a ton of more information on that. Yeah. <laughs> and just keep in mind, growing bigger plants requires a longer vegetative time. So you have to act accordingly as well. You have to have a large space for the roots. The, I always say more root, more fruit. Uh, the bigger the container that holds your soil medium or whatever it is that you're growing in, the more space for the roots and the bigger the plant is going to be, but it's also a longer vegetative time, so um, that's definitely something to consider. Uh, one of the things that uh, Kay does is people hire him, people with these big uh, growth spaces hire him as a consultant to come in when things go wrong. Uh, and things do go wrong, you know, when people are, are stepping up to these larger grows. So I want to ask Kay, um, what are the, the what are the things you see go wrong, and maybe uh, give us a solution or two for those, uh, for the people here? Well, some of the biggest problems I see are uh, the, the lack of uh, water filtration, air filtration, and attention to the actual growth environment. You know, I mean, how do you control the humidity? How do you control the temperature? How do you spread your rock light evenly so you have the lowest cost of production? And not being mindful of the cost of production. I've talked about this many, many times. I mean. As, as uh, municipality or states go legal, the, 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 the proliferation of cannabis 
gets larger and larger exponentially every year. So exponentially, uh, exponential product means the product ends up dropping in value. So you're in a race basically with your competitor. If he can produce twice as good a product for half the price and put it on the shelf to his customers for that price, you're not able to compete with something like that. So the cost of production, but you know that that comes with the efficiency of the machine. How how is your labor utilized and stuff like that? The gentleman works with some huge facilities, and some of those staff in those facilities end up spending you know 15 minutes to walk to the back of the facility, find out something's not where it's supposed to be, or something's broke or hasn't been ordered, and they walk back up front. So he might do that four or five times. You know, you might end up spending you know four hours a day paying that employee to walk back and forth. So making that machine efficient is like getting walkie-talkies and things like that. Just thinking ahead how to make that thing run like a real true machine. But you know, you also have things like ethylene buildup, you know, as as, as plants start transpiring, pre-spiring, they start utilizing the CO2, but they also expel some oxygen, but not enough to get back to the root system. And as your oxygen level falls, your ethylene level rises which will prematurely ripen those plants and any other plants that come into that. So, you know, there's many, many different things to, to, to deal with this. I mean, you know, so, so I mean, I walked into facilities and I, I call it the tail wagging the dog. One of the most fascinating things was the, the, the owners didn't really want to give staff the, the, the resources and, and all the materials that they really needed. To, to fulfill the job, hand watering, et cetera, et cetera. So instead of being reactive, it was, or proactive, it was all reactive. And by reactive, I mean they rushed in there every day, did the things they had to and everything else. There was no, you know, time to do, time to do the things that should be done, done properly. And in that, the, the, the gentleman decided to uh, make the soil composition heavier and heavier and heavier, which would require less watering duration, like went from three days, five days, until I went in there one time and all the plants were yellow. And I asked him, well, when were these water last? And they said two weeks. And I'm like, two weeks? What do you mean you're watering these things four times in an eight-week flowering cycle? I mean, this is just preposterous. But that's what he was forced to do to try to get all the work done in a huge, large-scale facility. So, I mean, the problems are many. And, um, yeah, and that ethylene thing is something you were mentioning too, Phil. Uh, he's literally saying that the drying plants next to plants that are in like the fourth or fifth uh, week of flowering can actually, the, the drying plants can affect the flowering plants and prematurely ripen them. This isn't something we even knew about in the, the growing plants. Not the growing plants can, yeah, very interesting stuff. And that means when people have these perpetual harvests and all these plants in different various stages of vegging and flowering, they're actually like communicating with each other. Um, it's good, that's why it's good to separate those areas from each other and have them on their own environmental controllers. Um, so Addison, I know a lot of people have a lot of curiosity about lab testing, so you, can you maybe just talk about the basics, uh, what a gas chromatography is, what liquid chromatography is, and just basically what you guys do at Steepill for when you get a sample to test for you know, THC and, and all the other things that you talked about earlier in your intro. Does it work? Um, yeah, essentially, if you bring in a, a sample, there's two different ways, two different machines that are mainly used. Yeah, if you bring in a sample, there's two different machines that are used to test it. Uh, when you have a can, of, you know, a can of flour in your hand, 
it's raw, so there's no heat, anything involved. So you have a lot of acids that are there. Those acids have to be converted um, into actives. So there's a high pressure liquid chromatography unit, which just uses liquids, and that allows you to see all those acids when you run on that unit. Then there's also gas chromatography units. Uh, those ones are using heat, and there's a column. You heat everything up, it falls through that column, and then it's collected out of mass spec on the other side. You can measure and quantify how much of what's in there. So there's two different units that you can look at. So that's why there's some confusion when you see results come through and you spend a lot of time, maybe you had a lab that used a GC and you saw results that had lower numbers. You know, everything was kind of in a more realistic place, uh, you know, 14% up to you know, 22, 23%. And then you start seeing numbers that are 30%. That's because that's THCA and not THC. And sometimes they fail to just tell you that there's no A there. Um, but it's an important fact. So make a big difference in how much is there. But, uh, so we use those different types of units. We, we also do um, trace residual solvent testing, where we're using a, a headspace sampler with a mass spec to identify what's in there, which, is, uh, which works really well. And then you can use either a mass spec or a, a GC or a high pressure liquid chromatography unit to analyze the terpenes. Uh, K is always bothering me to do 70 terpenes in a run. And 300. 300 terpenes in a run. I don't even know if he's fucking 300 terpenes. Yeah. Of course, sir. Yeah. I think he's writing a book or something. I have no idea. Um, so a lot of terpenes can be done on uh, the GC units. But we use our GC units mainly for residual testing because we do a lot of concentrate testing in California. Um, in other states where we're, where we're building the labs out, we're building to have dual units so that you can be able to run those units on each. But the thing about it is the GC with a nice mass spec is about a quarter of a million dollars. And the new triple quad HPLC units are you know, $450,000. Uh, we just added a brand new genetic laboratory in California in Berkeley. Uh, so now you might have seen it, we're offering uh, genetic testing where we identify males and, and seeds that are grown for just 14 days. Uh, so we sent some stuff to Danny and I have to do some stuff on it too, but we're using that genetic sequencer. It's about $700,000. There's only 200 of them in the world. Uh, and we just did the entire mapping of the male uh, cannabis plant first. So um, it's just, the, the equipment just grows. For, you can go into really crazy, just like if you're an extraction guy, you can, you can use really simple equipment or you can get into water stuff and start getting into things that will do complete isolation, separation, um, really cool shit. Stuff that Caleb has in his kitchen. Uh, interesting things like that. But, uh, so yeah, we both, you know, our labs here uh, in Denver, uh, there's one in California. Those labs you can bring samples in. And I think in Denver they don't allow patients to, to test at the labs, which is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, that's always been our position on it. Um, it's less business for us because we, we're not allowed to have patients come in. Like our doors have to be locked in Colorado, which is interesting too. Uh, so it's, if the doors are open and people can come in, you can have a lot more interaction with them. And then that, at that point, you're, you're consulting and helping a grower. You're helping a, a patient who's growing. You know, first time, you're helping an edible producer who's learning. You're helping a first time concentrate maker. And it's just better business for the labs, but then it's also better for the entire market that's in that place. Um, California has a really open. We just went to New Mexico. We were asked by the Department of Health to go. And it's really interesting because there's 23 producers that are also the collectives. And they don't get along with patients at all. And it's just the craziest thing I've ever seen. It's not like California or in other places, but. Um, so yeah, I, so with all the testing, there's a lot of different pieces of equipment we can use. There's a ton of different testing that we can do, and we're just expanding into the genetic test, uh, testing. Uh, we also have instant potency analysis testing using NIR technology, so. Um, but that's the one again, too, and Aaron can tell you more about that. <laughs>
Um, so different climates come with uh, different, um, I guess, solutions to climate control. And here in Colorado, obviously, dryness is a big issue, uh, lack of humidity. And I think it's similar in Southern California as well, where Aaron does his work. So I want to see if Aaron, uh, if you could talk a little bit about environmental controls in rooms, Aaron. <laughs> Um, just controlling the environment for, for better growth. Um, yeah, let me just speak up for the quantum. Uh, instant analysis of your cannabis. Um, and, it, uh, and it basically give you your potency or your CBD uh, non-destructed so you can actually get your sample back. But uh, environmental, uh, it plays huge roles on everything. Um, it's probably one of the biggest things that Casey's wrong when he does his consultancies. I can say we do some consultancy also, and it is one of the biggest things. Um, it, can, it can ruin your harvests if, if your room's not properly... Uh, your environmental is not properly controlled. I've seen uh, firsthand um, a ton of cannabis, literally a ton of cannabis that was harvested improperly with the wrong environmental conditions, and all the product all smell like wet hay. I don't know if you've ever run into flowers that smell like wet hay, but these people put them into their into the bag, and they seal up the moisture in the bag, and then you're stuck with the smell. In this case, and as a as a grower and as a cannabis user myself, I would not DNA approve something like that at all. Um, so, environmental conditions they play huge roles. Uh, humidity, you know, uh, in Colorado here we have low humidity, and in California you can have high humidity, you can have very low humidity, like in the lower than Colorado sometimes. But with the cure, the biggest problem out in Colorado is slowing the curing, the curing process down. Because over here, it's very low humidity and people are like, oh, I just cured my, and my crow crop in three days. I'm out the door in five days. And I don't know about you, but I can taste it in almost every single bag. That you know, it's all locked in there. The chlorophyll's locked in there. It's, yeah, and you, you go to roll a joint, and literally, it turns into almost heat. You know, so I've been saying this for years. California, uh, Colorado is a quick, quick dry capital of the world, and maybe one of the best places in the world to make hashish because of these conditions. So if you're a hash maker, Colorado might be your place to be because you can grow these large numbers. People have these large grows, the indoor acres, and sometimes their cannabis doesn't get cured up right. So they need somebody to process that down into hashish. So uh, this might be your calling, you know? Thank you. All right, sorry to interrupt you guys, but I have to uh, pay the bills here. And you've been hearing about this company a lot if you've been listening to the show. 
probably almost every episode, and it's BC Northern Lights. Uh, what they do is pretty amazing. They create these grow boxes that can give you uh, over five harvests a year in a fully automated growing appliance. I know a lot of people have trouble. Uh, they want to start a closet grow. They want to build a cabinet. They want to get started, and then they get bogged down in the minutia and uh, really just have a lot of trouble just getting out of the starting gate. And I think what these guys do is they provide you with a uh, an express train to Pottsville, so to speak. Uh, they have the roommate. They have the bloom box. They have the producer. All of these are uh, manufactured in Vancouver, Canada, and um, they have everything under control. I mean, odor, uh, CO2 dosing, automated timing for the fans and the filters and the lighting and the watering and pretty much everything you need to take care of is all taken care of. And yes, you know, like I said, they're, they're pricey, but within 10 to 12 short weeks, you will have a harvest that can not only provide you with bud, but also hopefully pay back some of the cost of the machine or all of the cost of the machine. So please do yourself a favor, check them out at bcnorthernlights.com or give them a call at 888-236-1266 and get started growing the BC Northern Lights way. Um, one of the rules of thumb about environmental control that's easy to remember that I tell people, I don't know if everybody here will agree, but it's 50, 60, 70. 50% humidity, 60 degrees nighttime temps, 70 degrees daytime temps, and then, you, you know, you're, you're pretty much crushing in. You can, you can vary a little bit here and there, but that's like all the ideals right there. Um, so, Jill, um, a lot of people want to grow their own strain. They want to create a strain that, that's brand new and something that's different. So, and you've done that. So, my question to you is, can you sort of take us through that process? Um, the selection of the strains, the, the selection for the genetics that you're looking for, the, the specific desirable traits, and then the, the process too of like, what do you do to make seeds? There's a lot of confusion. So, um, just take us through that process if you can, your, your way of doing Okay, well, first of all, um, you would start out with your peanut, you would, you would uh, have one that you grow on for a while, or you can on for a while, and um, you like her, and you would like the traits you have in milk. And, and you take the process with your milk, and you try to get the desired traits that you want, whether it be medicinal flavor or such a size for some people. And we put our female, we get her into flowering, about three weeks into flowering. We put her into the uh, breeding room with Mel and shake Mel up after a couple of days sitting in there. And pollen everywhere and it lands on her and there we go, we can see it in plant. That's going to be what week? What flowering week is a, is a good week to actually put pollen on? It would depend on your female, but it's approximately three weeks. And your male, it would depend on your male as well, and it also depends on the season. They do know that it's winter outside, even if they are indoors. They seem to be a little slower. Thank 
So um, Philip has done a lot of traveling. He mentioned it a little earlier, all around the world to places I guess that we can't even go to anymore. In a lot of uh, in a lot of ways, Afghanistan and um, a lot of parts of the Middle East as well. And uh, part of that was to collect land races. And so if you could maybe just talk about what a land race is, why why breeders would want one, and uh, you know what they are, and which ones you you've worked with that you, you know well and, and what makes them special? Um, a true land race would be a plant that has had real, no real interaction with humans. Um, I think the plant material that I have collected um, has been grown in region of origin by uh, traditional cannabis growing communities um, for long periods of time. Um, I don't consider them necessarily land races as much as I consider them um, maybe heirloom cultivars. Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> my reasoning in that um, was as I started to grow cannabis seed, I noticed um, a whole lot of similarities, and I noticed, you know, the plants that people tended to breed with were, you know, predominant. You know, they did extremely well in these perfect indoor environments, um, and over the years, they tended to put aside things like uh, disease resistance, um, <clears throat> resistance to insect um, environmental conditions, whatever. Um, so my feelings were going as deep as I could into the genetic population and being able to um, lock down traits um, that I thought were deeper and um, have a much less worked gene pool, um, I was able to really find the traits that I was after within the plants and uh, lock those down and continue that stuff through selective breeding. Um, you know, it's all theory or whatever. Um, but I believe cannabis um, originated in Central Asia. If it's not from there, um, it definitely, you know, survived the last few ice ages there in the caves with the, you know, the same humans that lived there and, you know, the dogs and a few things that managed to live through that stuff, you know, came creeping out of the caves and spread around the world. Um, they proved it with apples and um, a few other things. And I believe cannabis um, did come from Central Asia um, and, you know, it spread outward. Um, so um, by going to that part of the world and to going to other parts of the world um, where people have been growing cannabis for centuries and um, selectively breeding it for whatever traits they may have been looking for, um, you know, take somewhere like Yunnan, for instance, in China. Um, you know, it is a lowland um, tropical environment um, which meets at the steps of the Himalayas. So you have a lot of these um, broadly indicative plants coming down from the Himalayas and you have a lot of these uh, more tropical traditional plants um, coming from the lowlands. Um, and I, you know, that's quite possibly the birthplace of the you know, first true cannabis hybrids. Um, you know, it also has a very extensive um, history with the plant, you know, it predates writing. Uh, people have been growing cannabis in that part of the world um, since before people wrote anything down. And they have selected for many, many traits, um, whether that be for, you know, very large seeded hemp varieties, um, plants that um, have extremely high, you know, THC ratios versus CBD ratios, whatever. You know, maybe not on purpose, but, um, you know, by selecting the plants that did better in that environment um, throughout the years, um, they were inadvertently, you know, helping the plant. Um, so, um, again, uh, you know, growing plants um, that I was able to purchase through um, traditional commercial outlets in the early 90s, um, I was able to find a lot of things that worked extremely well for me in indoor environments. 
Um, taking them outdoors in Texas uh, was a completely different story. Um, and so by going deeper um, into the genetic pool and pulling out the plants that did better for me, um, I was able to create plants that um, I was able to grow and plants that I knew extremely well. And um, by continuing this, um, moving to Colorado, um, working in these large facilities, um, I'm able to grow lots of plants, you know, and um, <coughs> there's a lot of different theories when it comes to breeding, but I'm a real, you know, proof is in the pudding guy. You know, you can do pudding squares all day and, you know, try to predict inheritability or whatever. Um, but for me, you know, I need to grow them out um, to really see um, what traits have been inherited, what traits have not, um, what the ratio of those may be. Um, so by growing thousands and thousands of any given variety, we're able to do that. Um, over the last two years alone, I've grown pretty close to 50,000 seedlings in the one facility that I'm in. Um, you know, choosing hundreds of males, hundreds of females out of those, cataloging them, breeding with them, growing off their offspring. Um, you're really able to um, find what you're looking for in the larger numbers. Um, so the future of cannabis genetics is bright. Um, there's a lot of people doing the things that I'm doing. Um, there may not be a lot of people collecting plant material like I did. That just happened to be, you know, the luck of the of what I did. Um, you know, I never traveled specifically for that. It was uh, employment, and um, but we were able to um, capture lots of good things there and um, bring them to you guys. So awesome, awesome. Um, so Drew, you wanted to talk a little bit about curing. Um, but let's start with flushing and work our way there. Maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, what flushing, then harvesting and curing that, that process. Yeah, okay. um, yeah, so flushing is basically just getting the plant to consume the built-up nutrients it has within itself. Um, it, it's also flushing out the medium or the you know, your water system or whatever, but really that's just the first step. Like so. Uh, if you're doing hydro or whatever, you want to run, uh, you know, clean out the system. Uh, then basically, you give it, I like to give it at least like 10 days to two weeks without giving them any nutrients. And what you're doing is you're just forcing it to eat the what's stored up within it. And, you know, you really notice a difference in weed that's been flushed and hasn't been properly flushed uh, with the way that it burns. Uh, typically, non-flushed bud will make like a black charcoal. Or it'll be like a joint, won't light, won't stay lit. Or if you're smoking in a bong or whatever, it'll just get real hard, won't pull through, you know, whatever, yeah, charcoal. So, and that, the reason it's doing that is because of all the leftover residual, like, minerals and metals and stuff from the nutrients that are left in the, in the flower. Uh, a properly flushed flower will burn up like a cigarette ash will, like, just very white, silver, you know, just gray type of ash. And that's a good way, you know, a good indication to tell whether or not your meds are flushed or not. Um, so yeah, just stop feeding it, uh, you know, about two weeks before harvest, depending on the strain, and you know, that's basically, you know, you're flush. But um, I think the biggest thing, like what Aaron was talking about with uh, the drying it too quick, stick it in a bag, and it just ruins the product. I think the biggest problem people have is they don't really understand the distinction between drying and curing. Like, <laughs> drying is obviously just removing the moisture from the bud or the plant matter or whatever which is going to take a different amount of time depending on the climate. But the curing is the removal of the chlorophyll from the bud. And that's the, the green flavor. Uh, that's, the, that's the color green, really, is what's in it. So the curing is getting that out, and that will actually evaporate out over time uh, as ammonia. And that's the wet <coughs> smell. 
there was describing that if you know you mow your grass or something, throw it away. It's just that's what you get. That's the ammonia coming out of it. That's the chlorophyll coming out of it. So the whole idea of curing your mud, a lot of people put it in a big glass jar or something, and that contains it in the jar with the oxygen. There's microbes in the oxygen. That's what helps break down the chlorophyll, the other stuff. You open it every couple days, burp it, whatever people call it, you know, and you get, you'll get that green type of smell immediately when you open it. Continue to do that um, until you don't get that green smell. And that's, it's that simple. I mean, and at that point, you've removed the chlorophyll from it. You've cured your bud. Now it's ready to go in a bag. Now it's ready to be distributed. You know, and, that's, and that's a process. It's going to take time, you know, depending on the, the structure of the bud, the density of it, the strain, all that. But that's when you're really going to get the most out of it. That's when you're going to taste your terpenes the most. That's when you're going to get the most out of your cannabinoids. And uh, I think that a lot of people just make that mistake. They say, hey, it's dry. Let's get rid of it. You know what I mean? It's, and that's just the worst thing you do because then you're going to get mold and all that. And it's just, uh, so, yeah, the big distinction between drying and curing. Can I get that in? Yeah, absolutely. And also in the process of quick drying your material, you rapidly evaporated all available terpenes. So that's why that hay smell is so prominent. You know, some people have the misconception that you can take a around, you know, if they've been told, wait until the inner core snaps, till that inner stem snaps. By the time everything's dry and that inner core snaps, all the terpenes have been evaporated usually. I mean, the proper way to do it is uh, slow down the, the drying process so you're not rapidly evaporating all the terpenoids. You want to make moisture available in a dry situation because <clears throat> there's varying climates from California where we have a marine layer influx to Arizona to Denver <clears throat> where you're sitting at a 5,000 foot elevation where the, the humidity ranges from zero at nighttime because you've got 35% you know, temperatures outside and everything's frozen, but the next day the sun comes out and everything melts, and then you've got 80% humidity. So there's a lot of diversity. A lot of people think that you can get sealed rooms and put a whole lot of pot in these things, put a heater and a dehumidifier, and dry and cure. And that's just absolutely preposterous and impossible. First, you've got to get rid of hundreds of gallons. This gentleman will tell you hundreds of gallons of water need to go out of that room. And that water doesn't need to recirculate through that room in a closed room system. You need to have a fresh air intake and you need to have an exhaust for large quantities of cannabis. And then you put the heater, the, 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 the refrigerator, the dehumidifier, and the humidifier in there and get that stuff like a humidor to dry at the rate that you want it to, not that it does. All right, thanks, Kate. Also, um, a follow-up question for you, because people might be uh, a little bit confused. Okay. Um, um, so what is a trichome? And, I mean, I'm sorry, not a trichome. What is a terpene? And basically, oh, you know what, let's just say, can you just tell us the difference between a cannabinoid, a terpene, and maybe a flavonoid, and, and sort of what role those are? Okay, let's, let's ask Addison. What, and, and also talk a little bit also about terpene preservation. Let's start with what it is. Um, actually, all cannabinoids are terpenoids, and but not all terpenoids are cannabinoids. So if you have THC that's actually under the terpenoid family because of the way that you categorize it, I guess, there's a shitload of terpenes in cannabis. Like, he's looking for 300. There's, I don't know, I mean, they, they, and then terpenes are all based on how many molecules make up that terpene. And then there's esters that are in terpenes, which give them smell. Like bananas aren't from terpenes, it's just a straight ester that makes that banana smell. That's why you recognize it in different stuff. 
Um, but anyway, so uh, so terpenes are the greatest thing ever too because they help uh, unlock the, the endocannabinoid system and the receptor in order to allow the cannabinoid to work. That's why some people are like, oh, 9%, oh, that sucks, I want 21%. Well, it, it really depends on the terpenes on how hard it's going to hit you anyway. So that 21% may not be available because you wash all the terpenes out of that thing. You may have a 23% THC strain with shit for terpenes. Good luck. You know, you're at a place where it's like you're not really going to get the full effect. You're not going to get that really awesome high that you're looking for, whether it's artistic or whatever. It's not going to be there because you don't have those key components that are, that are making that, that happen. So um, terpenes are great. They're really everything about cannabis. And these guys are joking about the Terpene Preservation Society. But you belong to the Terpene Preservation Society, so don't fuck around. <laughs> not supposed to talk about Terpene Preservation <laughs> I, I wasn't supposed to cuss, but I wanted to see the sign that was made here at long and as far as the way to preserve the most amount of terpenes is don't dry your product. If you're doing hydrocarbon extractions, that's right. Slow dry. Well, fresh frozen. Too much moisture. Yeah, but you don't really have to deal with that 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 moisture if you're putting it into a water hash situation. Uh, dry sift is wonderful, but I love scissor hash. Last dry sift. PHO dry sift. Some of these, uh, some of these tributes, like we, there's certain varieties out out there that uh, show characteristics of, or have this certain terpene, and they're not high in THC and they're not high in CBD, but some of these terpenes play such a huge role that. They dictate which way you're going to go when you medicate. So some might be more medicinal and more uh, narcotic high and more body. And some might be a little bit more racy and more anxiety. Um, these are all the terpenes. You know, it's not the THC. It's not the CBD. It's all based around the terpenes. And uh, that it's one thing that we've based a lot of our breeding around is the volatile esters, the smells, the the flavors, the terpenes, the to us, to Don and myself, that's that's everything, you know, is what you're gonna enjoy when you take that first toke or what you're gonna enjoy when you smell and yeah, open okay, that. Okay. You know, the, the high is always gonna come. Give me some play. You know, you're no no matter what strain you're gonna smoke, you're gonna get high. But is it going to be that flavor? Is it going to be that flavor that dictates, oh, I'm going to smile. You know, I'm going to smoke this tangy. And, and it makes you smile. You stick your nose in the back of tangy. It makes you smile. You're like, wow. You know, it's that zesty, fruity, uh, vitamin C kind of orange smell. And it, 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 the turkeys dictate a whole lot. Uh, you know, I think... Um, the, the essential oil aspect of terpenes, like some people burn essential oils for their moods and 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 and
<laughs> According to the handbook of the essential oil, 60% to 90% of the terpenes are uh, evaporated. 40 to 60% of the terpenes are evaporated during the drying process. So if you use fresh frozen material to do your water hash and fresh frozen material to do your extracts, you're going to capture the highest amount of terpenes. Terpenes are the essential oils that make up the flavor and smell. That's why live resin or fresh frozen has so much grease because you allow the terpenes to stay there because you preserve them because you freeze it right away. And that's why most of that stuff is in parchment and it's super greasy and it's granular and you just want to be your best friend. I just wanted to also add this, this synergy between the cannabinoids and the terpenoids. It's been called uh, the entourage effect. Synergistic effect works yeah. much better. Synergistic effect, Kayla. I like contract. No, no. That's what you guys want. That's what you guys want. I want to bring it back to the flowers a little bit, and I want to ask uh, Ms. Jill, uh, what's sort of like you guys' philosophy on flowering? Basically, during the flowering period, um, how do you feed the plants? How do you treat the plants? And then, when do you decide to harvest? Well, on the feeding, we actually don't feed because we use the super soil, so we have everything in there, the plants that we need the whole way through. Um, some of the plants that are heavier feeders or maybe being a little bit longer, we just take some super soil and we top dress around the top, water the plant good, and that takes some more nutrients back through. Um, and then for the, the harvesting of it, you know, we just, some plants we take sooner because of what we're looking for, some we take a little bit longer. You know, you get your magnifying glass out or your George's, whatever, cell phone camera. And you can get in there and you can get a good picture and see the cloudy trichomes and, and decide when you want to harvest it. All right. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, no, I was going to ask Ms. Jill a question, actually. Uh, actually, I just totally forgot. Because he's smoking too much TGA. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, Mike, are you there? Uh, he's working on the AP. <laughs> um, we can take some questions from you guys also. If you have uh, something we haven't mentioned that you'd like to know about uh, for these guys or for me or for whoever, um, check that mic and make sure that you said you turned it up. Yep. All right. geared towards uh, Addison, I believe it is, the testing, uh, regarding testing on uh, residual fertilizers. How do you guys go about doing that? those tests? Is it like a percent dash type thing, or is it different? You mean like trace salts? Yeah, salts. How do you test for uh, residual nutrients? Like heavy metals, maybe. I mean, there's equipment that you can use to test for heavy metals. It's, it's the problem that you have running into that when it comes to regulation when they implement it. Typically, a lot of the soil is coming from a large producer that already does all that stuff that has to show those sheets that that stuff doesn't have any of it in it. And then a lot of the time, you're buying your soil in a bag at a grow shop off of a pallet that already has that as well and it's regulated. Um, 
So when it comes to any type of those heavy metal testing, it's really redundant, it doesn't make much sense because of that issue, but then if you get into a lot of outdoor growing and you're going into weird regions, like say they were gonna make growing 100% legal in Mendocino, uh, you would want that type of testing so that you could find runoff from something else uh, to protect. You know, EPA wouldn't allow you to do it either way. Um, but traces all solids, uh, being the salts that are used in you know, NPK for growing plants, uh, that stuff is, you can test for that. We don't test for that stuff. Typically, you can smoke a joint and tell if it sucks because they did use too much salts or didn't flush it correctly or incorrectly. You don't need a lab for that stuff. So. And that's what we were talking about earlier with the flushing and the curing is, you know, even with this contrast, if you go into the indica category, there's like 0.5 OG cushions. It's all the same, very, very similar genetics, and now you're judging the grower, right? You're not really judging the genes. You're judging how that grower is able to bring out the best of that strain. <laughs> And you can't get that without proper steering and flushing. This gentleman. My name's Ryan. I want to feel that thing. Do you find that organic mediums or fertilizers contain more metals? I'm sorry, this guy's distracting. Do you find that organic mediums or organic fertilizers for weapons have more metals in them? Sure. Um, you know, I, I haven't seen a, a correlation between that. We, we don't do any heavy metal testing because in California it's not required. We, we, we're very well connected into a lot of the soil producers and we, we know the system pretty well. Um, it's just, it would be a way, the testing that we introduce and we try to bring, I've been a grower for a long time and, and a breeder and then got into being lucky enough to start a lab because we saw the reason for it and why it needed to occur. But what also comes with that is knowing the industry really well, so you know how things are working. Um, there, there's just the organic stuff, I've never seen a connection between that. I mean, there's the worst thing about organic, the biggest mistake I've seen people make with organic is, you know, using uh, non-aerobic, or spraying non-aerobic stuff on plants and spreading that stuff around. That's super bad. Uh, you should, you know, make sure that if you're doing that stuff, you know how long you should be running those pumps, what, what everything's supposed to look like. Because the benefits from it are insane. I mean, inoculum root growth goes through the roof. Terpenes produce, it, it's just, it's good. Hello, my name is Joe from uh, Mindrate, Detroit. Uh, when I initially flush my plant, I bring the PPMs down to like one or two hundred, and then I run my flush for about ten days to two weeks. Is that overkill to flush it down that much, or you just let the plant naturally eat up the remaining uh, nutrients, like in the soil or cocoa? I don't think it's overkill at all. I mean, if you can achieve that, then that's great. I mean, that's what you're trying to do. It's going to take less time for the plant to consume what's within itself and you'll have a cleaner product for sure uh, as a result of it, I think. Mike, Mike. Can it, can it stress the plant out if you take too long? I've seen that. I mean, you definitely want to be familiar with your plant, you know, if it's finishing times and stuff. You know, the first time you run a strain, it's like a big mystery, you know, so you might just want to start like a standard 10 days or something like that and then get to know. But you'll start to see the yellowing. And if you do see that in like a week, then maybe you could have gone longer, maybe you could have fed it a little more or something. But can't go wrong. My question is kind of along that same line. I grow a lot of strains that are about a 65 day cycle. And I'm always confused on when do I start this 10 to 15 day flush, but the last two weeks I also want to pick up my phosphorus because I want to have those really dense buds. Where is this fine line? 
I think he's still treated the same way. Uh, I think the plant is already at that point where it's a couple weeks away from being harvested, has already had access to whatever's in the pot, whatever's in the soil. It's going to consume that, take it up. Uh, it's got built up within itself um, some already. So I, I just treat them the same way. You know, and those faster finishers that you have, those are some of the conditions that you have with those for sure. Aaron? Um, uh, when you were, do you feed your plants some type of phosphorus in the last two, three weeks? I have been told that I do want to, uh, you know, like Moab or some of these other high phosphorus ones. They're recommending the last two weeks. Right, yeah, I would, uh, I would, I would strongly suggest you, if you're going to use the Moab, the phospholone, use it in a very small dosage in week three, you know, very small dosage, and in your flush stage, you know, 15 days, 16 days, um, it goes back to the last question too, I was going to say, I would never take a picture of my plant when I'm done flushing my plants. Okay, so your plant is going to tell you, hey, I don't look good right now, something's going on, but those buds are still green, but every leaf is like starving for some food. It's, it's a great time to flood, great time to cut down your plant, dry it out slowly, cure your plant, and enjoy your medicine. So you're saying that the leaves will start to go yellow and turn fall colors and things like that. It looks like fall in Massachusetts. <laughs> All right, you guys, sorry to interrupt again, but I know you want to grow pot. That's the only reason you're listening to the, the sound of all of us yapping about growing pot. So uh, you have the equipment, you have the know-how, you have everything you need except seeds. And I highly recommend going to Gorilla Seed Bank. That's G-O-R-I-L-L-A dash cannabis dash seeds dot co dot UK. They are out of the UK and they sell seeds. Pretty much every seed bank you can think of, plus some you've probably never heard of, but uh, all very well vetted. Um, they've got the feminized seeds. They've got the autoflowering seeds. They've got regular seeds from all the companies that you know and respect. Plenty of the people who've been on the show. Uh, right now they have a special on super iced grapefruit. Uh, now, this is a very interesting strain, um, testing at over 22% THC. You can buy individual seeds of this for like 12 13 bucks. You can buy five packs uh, for under $50. And this is a very, very strong, high yielder, definitely a crowd pleaser. So check out Gorilla Seed Bank. Um, yeah, they have that super iced grapefruit. They have a number of other amazing different types of strains you can look up strains by type by high thc by sativa by indica by everything and be sure to follow them on facebook uh at facebook.com slash gorilla seeds so give them a like send them a tweet tell them free weed sent you shout out to gorilla seed bank and now back to the show Uh, in regards to drying, uh, what is your opinion on the hanging baskets that people tend to go towards because of the faster drying times and the degradation of the turfings because of the preservation? Um, well, uh, the, dry, the people that normally use these uh, drying uh, racks, 
are usually trimming their crops fresh and cleaning it up and then hanging it on the rack. And most of the time, most of the growers don't finish cutting down their crop. And the next day they come back and they cut down more wet flowers and they put it on the same rack below, below it. So you're never really drying out your cannabis properly. Um, It's good for uh, machine trimming, you know. I mean, those rats. Yeah, are good. It's it's good for you know something. It's it's a good idea for a small grower, and you could trim up your small grow and do it all at once and put it on the rack and dry it slowly. It's a good thing, but a lot of those racks speed up the drying process because you have to cut it down into smaller pieces on the rack. I'm a strong strong supporter of cutting your plants down and hanging them. For you know, uh, depending on your weather conditions, for ten days, about ten days, it usually ends up being, and uh, then start your trimming process. And then I would, uh, as you're trimming, as the days go by, and I would never introduce those. I would always introduce drier buds on top of the weather bugs, so they're absorbing some moisture, but I have some airflow over whatever I, my container that I'm using to. To, as the trimmers are going, the trimmed in, or not the trimmed in, the bud in, having something blown over it. And the, none of the flowers ever go into a bag unless the stem breaks and it's smokable for myself, you know, or for who any of my friends are. It's, once it goes into a bag, it's got to be good enough for you to smoke. So obviously uh, it's important to dry slowly, but is it possible to take too long? Well, what's the result if, if, if it dries too slow? Where we're from, we can get 80% humidity overnight. And I'll stay that way all night long. And then we're in the middle of drying our too, too long, I mean, I think the worst thing that happens is when it goes from like the fluctuation, like the dry, super dry for a couple of days, to then it re-moisturizes and then back to being dry again. I think that totally kills off the terpenes and you know hurts all that. But um, if you can leave the plant... Like if you leave them on large branches, hang them upside down like that, like de-leaf them and as much as possible. That's how I like to do it. I don't like to cut them off the branch because it seems like you're handling it more than there's more chance of, you know, harming the product, you know, harming the quality of it. So it's touching, rolling around in the... Uh, only time I use those multi-tiered trays is if I'm using, like taking out like a greenhouse or something and we have a couple machines going, you know, and it, it cuts it into little butts, you know, and you can't really do anything about it. But if you can help it, hang it up, you know, hang it up in a dry room and then go back over it you know, final time to manicure it or whatever. And then now with all the oil making and stuff, it's totally changed the way people are doing their trimming and their, you know, harvesting in general, you know. So more people are just after the trim now. And now it's people that aren't even trimming it at all, you know. And why trim it if they're going to just run it all into oil, so. Cover the leaves when you take off the shade leaves when you take off the sugar leaves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, go ahead, yeah. Moisture, yeah. What we usually do is we take, when we trim the plants, we take the branch off and we trim the big shade leaves off. And then we put those, get rid of those, and we go and take all the sugar leaves and we trim them into a smaller container. We leave the plant on a branch, you know, about that long, has a little crook on it so we can hang it on hangers. Yep. And then we leave it there until the stems are getting, you know, drier and, and the buds start to feel drier on the outside. And we cut it off of the stem and we put them in large uh, Tupperware containers and we leave that open, depending on the humidity, sometimes we close them a little bit more. 
and we let it stay that way until it's ready to go into the jars, and we always use glass jars to cure it, and the process does take quite some time. Yeah. I mean, uh, I got a question. Uh, Long-term storage, uh, what do you use? Uh, does it affect your dripping profile? Cryo-free, you think, both? The best way to do it is uh, you can search and find cryo-freezers. Cryo is going to be the best storage possible for turbines. It's going to, you can take full plants, like the cookies guys are just taking full plants out of the room, putting them in these, wrapping them in these silicone uh, bags, and then they just toss them in, the, in there. And then they're being pulled out and blasted. It's, it's the craziest process, but you can preserve them best. And you can find them for from you know six grand all the way up to twenty thousand dollars. But you're talking about negative 83, 82 degree monsters. That just shut. It's like Walt Disney's head that like, shuts it all down <laughs> and protects the turbines, which is important. So. Nice. I just like. I mean, if you're not, if that's a little out of your range, you know, I like to do. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm bringing a gun to a knife. It's <laughs> uh, you know, like a shop, like a vacuum, see, like a kitchen. What do they call those? Uh, you know, vacuum food saver. Thank you. Like I've used those many times. But uh, yeah, food saver bags good. And then throw them in the freezer, you know, in the dark or whatever. And, uh, yeah, I like it's somewhere cool, cool and dark, basically, you know. That's why try not to keep it that long. Yeah, if you can help it. <laughs> and that same freezer is really good for winterization. Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, it's great. You can just shoot it right into mason jars, stick them into the cryo freezers. The yield's really low, but you can turn black mud into the most beautiful, five-tall, rich, golden, <laughs> terpene, wonderful gas ever. So, cool. So, um, I was curious, what relative humidity do you look for when you're drying? Um, 40%? Relative humidity while drying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, 30 to 40 percent is what it typically is around where I am, and I try to slow that down a little bit. So, I think like 40, 45 percent, and then they make these. Um, you know, like these humidipacks now that you can put in. They're like dual acting. I like to use those a lot too. And then they keep the relative humidity around like 58% on the, you can put it with the bag. And I think that's a nice level to keep it after it's been cured. Uh, but yeah, to keep it, you know, I live in Oregon. It's in the desert. You know, it's, we struggle to get the temp, I mean, the humidity up just like you guys do here. So yeah, I mean, try to get it around for you. Uh, relative humidity drying. A dry bush is 10%. I mean, like, uh, like environmentally. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, okay, I was talking earlier. You're removing 90% of the moisture from the plant, and then you can consume it. It should be at about 10% moisture. Like, a really awesome nug is at about 10% moisture, right in that range, uh, you know, 9 up to 11 or 12, but uh, perfect. All right, let's go. Yeah, we were having a conversation. I don't know if a lot of Oh, okay. Uh, the conversation we had is, as far as when you plant small, I've been pinching mine back. I make little Christmas Oh, I make little Christmas And uh, he keeps telling me that you're actually harming the plant. Is that true? Uh, one more time, what was the last sentence? By pinching. Cut the top bud off. By cutting the top bud off. Like the, the, the very top of the plant while it's yeah. in vegetation. But also it's all pinching too. Yeah. Pinching. 
No, that doesn't harm it at all. That's that's totally beneficial, and that's how I, I start doing that. Yes, pruning and what you're, the the pinching. It's like an old term. It's called super cropping. They call it that. I find is not as beneficial than the, the low stress stuff where you're just bending. You're not really harming the plant because if you you break the branch, there's going to be a term where it has to recover. Whereas if you just do like a simple bend by using like a, I use um, like a 10 gauge ground wire, the green ground wire, and I'll use that, I'll hook it to the edge of the pot and then just pull down the branch. Uh, it allows you to just release it once the other ones catch up and then that branch doesn't have to recover by you know fixing that break or whatever. Um, but as far as topping it, bending them, that, that's really good for the plant. It strengthens the structure of the plant uh, when it repairs those parts and it's just, all around good, uh, creates more bud spots, you know, more, more, more bud, more yield, ultimately. And you just got that information from a man who produces 15 by 15 by 15 foot square plants that produce 10 pounds. I highly suggest you buy his book, because if his second book is as good as his first, you can't go wrong. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank, you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> your book? It's not out yet. I'll buy your book. So based on the industry and how it's developing state, state, region to region, knowing what you know and as every grower knows that you're the best grower or whatever it is out there, what are some of the main constraints that you face with bringing this wise, wise cultivation knowledge to the consumers, to the general public, so that not just state to state, this person, that person, but what do you think those are? Well, first of all, not every grower on this panel thinks they're the best because the, for, for every answer I get, I get five more questions. So I'm far from the best, don't know the most. And that's the fascination of all of us on this panel. Is this plant will teach you so much. There is so little information. I mean, we're, you hear us joking about terpene content. I mean, this man runs a lab, and we can't even figure out how many terpenes are in this thing. You know, or how many cannabinoids? Is there 600 chemicals in there? 650? I mean, that's, that's a multi-million dollar apparatus that even could come close to telling you that, multiple apparatuses. So, so that, that's kind of the fascination of everybody in this room. I mean, we love to teach, they love to learn, but we learn from them and everything else, and that's what drives this industry forward. I, mean, I think the biggest constraint to spreading the information is obviously the prohibition. I mean, there are places that they would want to throw us in jail for doing what we're doing right now still, you know, in this country and definitely in the world. Um, not that they really could, but, you know, it's a, it's a concern, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to book a venue to do this, you know what I mean? Like, there's so many things have to be in place, I mean, that's why I talk to killing it, you know, because they always make this forum, and it's hard to do on the, on the backside, you know, there's a lot of logistics that go into this type of thing that it's hard to pull off for the average person that knows a little bit about growing wheat, you know what I mean? So, it takes something like this, you know, I think to answer your question. And to get this amount of knowledge that we all have, I mean, all of us put our life in 25 to life situations. All of us have friends in prison for 10 and 20 years. I mean, so I mean, you know, it wasn't just about money. It wasn't about getting high. This plant will really, really captivate you. I've met some really, really incredible growers that don't even smoke cannabis. It's amazing. Weed's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to also follow up on that by just saying, as long as we have the right to grow our own, we have really nothing to fear, really, from Marlboro and Monsanto and all these companies. People are very afraid that there's going to be all these monopolies and stuff. As long as you can grow your own, they can't do that to us. And why would you want to get something from them when you can grow it, your own, know what's in it, and you know, know all the, put your love into it and get it back out? 
I'm not buying my weed from, you know, Marlboro, so I, you no, know, I'm not afraid of him. <laughs> but this gentleman here has a question. I do. Aaron thinks it's bad, but I love General Hydroponics. So there. Oh, But they just got bought out by Monsanto. So I don't want General Hydroponics Technically, Scott's and No bullshit, I just talked to Larry Brooks, the man who sold his company to him the other day, and I asked him that specific question while he's in the room with the man who he sold it to. And that is not true. He told me they have a contract to sell Roundup with Monsanto's. The product has nothing to do with Monsanto's. I've used their product for over 20 years. I've won for the first American to win nine cup, American Cups with it. Uh, it's an amazing product if you know how to use it. I got a 600-page book coming out. I mentioned the name probably 400 times. And if they were supporters of that company or did any nefarious activity, I would not have mentioned them in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, uh, Larry, Larry, and Larry has put a lot of money in, into this support, uh, uh, industry. He has backed Proposition 215. He's put a lot of heart and soul into this. So I hate to see him get tagged with that. Yeah, no, I mean, the Monsanto tax, it doesn't seem valid, but Scott's Miyoko Grow is not, not the greatest company on it already without that connection. So. I would let someone jack you down. <laughs> All right. And, and uh, thank you for letting me know that. Sorry about the misquotation. All right, this gentleman here has a question. Yes, how do you know what the moisture content of the plant is and also the THC? You can, uh, you can test for moisture content using something as simple as NIR technology, so the quantum system can test for moisture content. Um, pretty, pretty easy to do using NIR. So. Yeah, basically, you're not going to be able to do it by looking at it yourself. You're going to have to bring it into one of these labs. Yeah, yeah, to get the percentage. Yeah, in order to get the percentage, you have to bring it into a lab. There's no way. I mean, if you can do that, then. <laughs> Get a job. Very few home growers can actually do that. What was that? Very few home growers can actually do that. I heard Bob Marley look good. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, what we're really, we're, we're talking about a trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. If it's good and it's ready to go and it smokes perfectly, it's right around between 8 and 12% moisture. That's just, that's where you are. And, and the reason I can say that is we test a lot of cannabis from a lot of different, uh, you know, scale expertise in growing. And that's where we see it fall. And, and uh, we're talking hundreds of thousands. I can take that we're able to see. ten thousand wet plants and get the wet weight from them, and take that ten to twelve percent and get within a couple of pounds yeah. of what that entire ten thousand plants is going to yield. So that's a pretty good ratio. Uh, uh, back to the uh, GMO issue. I read a while ago that Monsanto was making a scary GMO weed. And I'd like to know what you guys know about this whole GMO weed thing and what are. Uh, only thing I know about it is I think it's going on in like South America, maybe in like uh, Uruguay. I think they're experimenting with it there, and that's uh, that's all I I know of. Um, I can verify. It. Speculation and rumor, as far as I'm concerned, none of you are going to buy it anyway. So. <laughs> I don't even know that it's true. I tried to check the sources on that story. I couldn't find a legitimate source. Yeah. You, would, you would know. And you even know. if it was happening, I mean, first off, I'll say something that's a little controversial, but GMO isn't all bad. 
You know, there's, but there's some good that comes you would, from. You would know because you would be buying that cannabis out of a major store. You would know because Aaron would be driving the Ferrari to <laughs> <laughs> Monsanto. <laughs> All right, question here? First off, we have a PGA I was curious what you guys are, what you think the upper end uh, yield is possible in the possible HPS. Um, have you seen anything like four or five pounds per light? Uh, I've seen three and a half pounds per light, but that's not, uh, that's using uh, some kind of bud producer, some phosphorus. My friends seem to be making five grams, yeah, 75 pounds per light. If they have fresh OG, so I, you know, I gave them some fresh seeds, so that's what they do. And we'll see if they get five pounds of light. I mean, they're doing extraordinary numbers, but I'm not, I'm not huge on phosphor. I like the middle range buds a little bit better. Um, we gave between three and four per light, the four plants under a light. Um, those plants would all be the same age, same height, so that you have canopy management. And yeah, I'd say anywhere between three and four um, per light. We run out of four lights, so. I have a question for Kay. Um, this is sort of topical now because we are, we're sort of seeing growing change in a lot of ways because of the concentrates, the, the, all the stuff that's happening with concentrates. And for the longest time, you know, the 80s and the 90s, we were trying to grow these dense, big indica buds. And now it seems that that's no longer the case because when you're using those buds for concentrates, it may be more desirable to have it be a bit more wispy and with more surface area. So tell me a little what you've seen about that. What you're talking about is a higher percentage of essential oils because you don't have to grow the buds for bag appeal anymore or for shelf appeal. You can actually grow fluffier buds and stuff that have higher resin content. You know, um, what that translates into, okay, so I got one client that, that spends between and, or, uh, twenty-five dollars and $35,000 per week on training. That's obviously one, $100,000 to $140,000 per month and times 12, there you go. They no longer uh, dry and cure that product because they don't need the, the machinery, they don't need the tech, they don't need the labor or anything else. They fresh freeze it and go with it, you know? And from that, uh, you, you've just saved yourself over a million dollars a year. Um, exactly. And, and you're harvesting those plants not like you traditionally would uh, uh, in the past. Uh, in, in the future, someone like this gentleman's going to go in there and he's going to determine all the top of his canopy, the top one third is, 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 is right. You That's would, what we do. Yeah, and why, wouldn't you, why would you harvest the whole plant at one time? You're, you're harvesting two thirds of that plant on right. And, you know, so if you take off all the top stuff, take off some of the families, you're going to ripen up all that lower, low, lower material. You're not going to make it into dense buds, but you're going to increase the weight by 25% in essential oil production. And that's all going to go into your oil production anyway, and higher terpene content and everything. So, so you. So can you sort of follow up on that as well? Because I know you guys at Mindful do a lot of growing just for uh, oil production. Yeah, we, uh, we actually 
for the majority of our grows, we, uh, we split the plant into a third. We take in hand trim that top third. Um, that is sold as, you know, shelf quality, high-end hand trim butts. Um, that middle third um, is either run through a processing machine um, to be sold as mid-grade, um, or it will go into extract. Um, every plant in all of the facilities, every bit of the bottom third is stripped and either flash frozen or dried, and it all goes into an extract process. Um, we do grow plants specifically for extract, and like uh, like these guys are talking about, it's a different um, it's a different type of growing. Um, we we grow these plants specifically to have a lot of surface area, so that when you um, do put them in a column or you do run them through your um, water hash extraction process, there's a lot more surface area to either be washed um, by water or by butane or by whatever. So it's um, not only doable; people are doing it everywhere. And, um, getting great results. Um, we're getting upwards of 25 to 30% yields on um, extracts, uh, fresh frozen plant material. Um, high, high terpene preservation. Good job. All right, now I believe it's time for shout outs. So if you guys will just go down the road quickly. Okay. One word for preview, Oh yeah, we lost a great, a great dear friend of ours, um, a photographer who's worked with High Times for decades. Our friend Jeff just recently uh, suddenly passed away at the age of 44, so I just wanted to mention that and uh, have a little moment for him. Uh, I'm going to do it from the stage as well when we do the award show, but uh, just wanted to say I mean, he's responsible for countless covers of the magazine, centerfolds, flaps, all the beauty shots that you see. Um, there's only two or three people in the world that, that can do that, and he was one of the greatest, if not the greatest. So, also the uh, founder and developer behind the Method 7 uh, glasses and, and filters, um, due to his knowledge of, of photography, and particularly grow room photography, because most grow photos under high pressure sodium lights in particular are crappy. They're just yellow and orange, and you don't see the green, you don't see any of the re really what that looks like because of that lighting. And you can white balance cameras and things like that, but nothing works as good because Jeff developed um, these filters through many, many years of experimentation. So, recipes to freebie, Jeff, and uh, yeah, we lost a great friend and a great ally of cannabis, someone who really, with his photos, gave us a glimpse at how it can be for everybody. Because you don't have to grow as big as some of these guys to get great buds. You can do it in a 3x3 tent. And um, I think some of his visuals are what made that attainable and possible for people. So, um, shout out to him. And uh, now, all right. Thank you, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed that panel. I know the sound. Uh, quality wasn't ideal, but uh, you know we're we're improving on that, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll have some better ones. I hope you learned something. I know I did, and I know uh, um, I had a lot of fun with the panelists, and we talked about a lot of interesting cultivation-related subjects, some of which uh, haven't really been covered before. So that was exciting, and it was really great to have. Uh, have that group of people and like I said we're going to have another episode with the other panel that we did on Monday 420 and there's a whole different group of growers on that one as well and very excited about that thank you to our sponsors uh, thank you to BC Northern Lights and Gorilla Seed Bank 
Um, as always, raw papers where we wrap it up with raw, which I guess is what this is, right, Mike? Yeah, I believe we are currently wrapping it up with raw. Awesome. And uh, what I would like to contribute to this raw wrap-up is a fond farewell to Michelle Leonhardt. Yes. Would you join me in that? Good riddance. Good riddance. Absolutely. That woman was fired six years too late. But, uh, <laughs> but at least she was let go. Uh, it's unbelievable. Fair- it took a sex scandal to unseat this person. Who, yeah. You know, she, she, she became acting administrator under Bush, but Obama actually kept, nominated her and well, kept her. Kept her around, which was a big mistake. He would have lost no political capital in getting rid of the, you know, Bush-nominated head of the DEA. She was openly rogue against him and against us. And um, You know um, what? Can I, I, I want to play uh, Congressman Polis questioning her about the dangers of heroin relative to marijuana. Should we just do that real yeah, quick as a little tribute? Yeah, let's play just to show what a, what a dipshit this woman is. Uh, is uh, crack worse for uh, a person than marijuana? I, I believe all, Ill- all illegal drugs are bad. Is methamphetamine worse for somebody's health than marijuana? I don't think any illegal drug is good. Is uh, heroin uh, worse uh, for someone's health than marijuana? Again, all I mean, drugs. either They're yes, no, or drugs. I don't know. I mean, if you don't know, uh, you can look this up. You should know this is the chief administrator for the Drug Enforcement Agency. I'm asking you a very straightforward question. Is heroin worse for someone's health than marijuana? All illegal drugs are, are bad. Does this mean you don't know? Heroin causes an addiction. Okay. That causes uh, causes many problems. It's very hard to uh, to kick. So does that mean that the health impact of heroin is worse than marijuana? Is that what you're telling me? I think I think you're asking a subjective question. No, it's objective. Uh, just looking at the science, this is your area of expertise. I'm a layperson, but I've read read some of the, the studies. I'm aware of it. I'm just asking you, as an expert in the subject area, is uh, heroin or someone's health in marijuana? And I'm answering as a police officer and as a DEA agent that these drugs are illegal because they are dangerous, because they are addictive, because. Okay. They, they do hurt a person's health. So heroin is more addictive than marijuana? Is, is heroin more addictive than marijuana I in your experience? Generally, generally, the properties of heroin, yes, it's more addictive. Is methamphetamine more addictive than marijuana? Well, both are addictive. Well, is, is methamphetamine more highly addictive than marijuana? I think some people uh, become addicted to marijuana, and some people become addicted to methamphetamine. You mentioned that the top, uh, your top priority, I believe, you indicated to us, is abuse of prescription drugs. Uh, is one of the main classifications of prescription drugs uh, painkillers that you're uh, concerned about? That's correct. And are those painkillers uh, addictive? Yes, they are. Very addictive. Uh, are those painkillers uh, more addictive than marijuana? All. Illegal drugs are in Schedule One are addictive. Well, again, this is a, uh, a, a, a health-based question, and I know you're uh, uh, obviously you have a law enforcement background, but I'm sure you're also familiar, given your position with the science of the matter. Uh, and I'm asking, you know, again, clearly your your, your agency has established abuse of prescription drugs as the top priority. Uh, is that therefore an indication that prescription drugs are more addictive than marijuana? All illegal drugs are addictive. Okay. I mean, that is, that is spellbinding 
and mind-breaking and just – it's depressing and, and amazing all at once. Right. Well, that's the person that was in charge of, of the DEA. It's, it's, <laughs> it's phenomenal that she can't admit – uh, that marijuana is safer than heroin or methamphetamine. It's, or crack. Or crack. It just it's, all drugs are bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, good riddance. The witch is dead. You know, they fairly unceremoniously kind of got mm-hmm. rid of her. Uh, the reason being, of course, that DEA agents were having sex with prostitutes in Colombia on cartel money dimes. <laughs> like, yeah, let me, I, let me just repeat that so everyone I, I, can understand. Yeah. The cartel was paying for sex parties that DE agents participated in. Uh, uh, the mind wobbles. I, I just don't <laughs> – <laughs> I can't ra- even wrap my mind around that as mm. far as how much of a messed up thing that is. I mean we had the issue with the Secret Service and now with the DEA. It's like, it's, it's like the people that we pay to protect us aren't protecting us. It almost seems like oh they'll they'll bust your ass for smoking <laughs> a joint in New York City, but you know but they, it's they, just yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. So uh, goodbye to Michelle Leonhardt. Hopefully, uh, you know they'll put someone in charge uh, with a little bit more brains. I guess that's the problem now, right? Like who who is the next person just as bad or worse or yeah. better? Hopefully, we have Hopefully. Loretta Lynch now in place of Holder for Attorney General. So maybe uh, maybe the DEA administrator will be a progressive. <laughs> it sounds like a oxymoron, but you know. we can only hope. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, goodbye, Michelle. Not sorry to see you go. No. So yeah, uh, raw papers. Wrap it up with raw. Um, make sure you wrap all your joints with raw. Get your seeds from Gorilla Seed Bank and grow them out in a BC Northern Lights grow box. Uh, and we'll we'll probably be back with. Um, like a studio free weed right. next and then follow that with another live one. So sort of like a sandwich. Uh, but we miss doing the questions and uh, and interacting with all you listeners. So stay tuned for that. But we wanted to bring you this uh, hot off of the presses sort of from, from Denver. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, hopefully you can join us in NorCal uh, or Michigan or Jamaica, which is a new one. I'll be going down there later in the month just to, uh, you know, scope out the scene. It's not bad, right? November in Jamaica. That sounds like a good plan. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, go to CannabisCup.com for information on all those upcoming cups. We got a, a bunch of them before the end of the year. So, you know, get involved if you'd like to come out and see us. Yeah, man. Uh, episode number 80. Put it in the books and uh, cue the tune. Mm-hmm.